happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is episode number 119 of the EdTech Situation Room on December 26, 2018. My name is Jason Neifert. Actually, it's our final uh, episode of the 2018 calendar year. My name is Jason Neifert, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus here in fabulous Missoula, Montana, and joining me again this evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you on this day after Christmas holiday? Good evening, Jason. I'm doing well. We're actually surviving thunderstorms, kind of a little little odd for this time of year. So it's had like straight line winds with 65 mile an hour gusts. It came through, so kind of kind of strange, but no, no white Christmas here. We've been in the, the 50s and 60s, and uh, Excited to catch up on some news. I think we may we may have set a new record as we close the year with the most number of links. Uh, we took the, the week to, to have a gift, to, you know, gift show, and then last week um, I was was out sick, so I am uh, ready to jump back into it this week. Excellent. Well, for those of you new to the Edtech Situation Room, first, welcome to our humble podcast. Uh, you can see the links to all of the stories we refer to at our website, edtechsr.com. And you can also find download links there to the podcast, or you can subscribe to us wherever the finer podcasts are aggregated. But our usual format is we take interesting things from the news. And as it turns out this week, there's lots of interesting undercurrents about technology. And we tend to kind of put them through a, an educational lens as a hope of of providing some insight and maybe some discussion points for you and, and colleagues in your district to talk about the best ways to implement tech in your classroom, school, or district. And with that in mind, Wes, where would you like to start us this week? Oh, goodness. Let's see. Well, uh, actually, let's go with the, the Teachers Pay Teachers article that I think you uh, dropped in from Education Week. This was on December I did. 19th, and um, the title is on Teachers Pay Teachers, Some Sellers Are Profiting from stolen work. And, um, you know, I've definitely, I've never put anything up on Teachers Pay Teachers. I'm a huge advocate of, you know, open sharing, but of course there's also, you know, opportunities to monetize. And when I was in Yukon Public Schools, one of the um, elementary teachers that I actually worked with in a little after school club was staying home and she had replaced her income as an elementary teacher with, as I recall, three or four uh, lessons that were, were language arts focused. And I was just like, are you kidding me? You know, so uh, depending upon the niche, um, you know, this, this is something that really provides uh, some really, you know, wonderful income uh, for teachers. Uh, but the article uh, goes through, I think, some really troubling issues. It kind of remind me of Facebook in the same way that Facebook's like, hey, it's not our fault. They basically comply with the, the Digital Millennium Rights Copyright Act. Am I saying that right? DM. Uh, DMCA, I think, or what is it? What's the acronym? Yeah. Uh, DCMA. Yeah. yeah. And so basically they have to have a way for folks to flag content. And then if it is, um, you know, found to be infringing, then, then they have to be taking it down. But the problem is you have to police the site yourself as one of the stories on the, in the article details, um, when somebody was complaining about, you know, a, a completely lifted, um, you know, lesson that, that they had written, um, actually, I think it was about Black Panther, about the movie. Um, they, they, they were getting complaints from that user that they were harassing them and they were told their account might be deactivated. And so it really is a situation where, uh, teachers who are being victimized at, by having their content, you know, taken away. Yes, they are technically following the letter of the law, but they're really not doing any, anything apparently to be proactive in terms of policing content. And you certainly can feel like, you know, you're kind of on a, a lonely island. So what are your thoughts about this, Jason? Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you did this first, and I, I think we may open up a bit of a can of worms here to discuss this. And I, I should make a full disclosure uh, note that I'm actually working on a proof of concept right now of a channel to open up on Teachers Pay Teachers, a project with a couple teacher friends of mine to sell some resources that are um, developed particularly for this this website. And one of the reasons why that I, I want to do that is in part because I think uh, there's a, a real lack of what I think are uh, professional quality secondary resources on teacher pay teachers. I'm a consumer of teachers pay teachers. We've actually used it a couple of times in context of my day job to look for activities that we could adapt to an all online environment. But also, I have a number of friends that um, also sell via this website, and uh, there's no lack of um, 
websites and services and online classes you can take that will teach you how to profit on the Teachers Pay Teachers website, but it doesn't come without controversy. Wes, you mentioned that uh, the notion that you usually give your stuff away, that's been your general um, uh, uh, strategy uh, you know, for 20 years. In fact, I got to know you uh, 20 years ago as a, a blogger um, before blogs were, were really a factor because you were giving things away to do that. And that's been one of criticism of the website. The copyright thing's really interesting, though, because I a couple of my own experiences. The first one is that uh, we've actually purchased full classes. And what I mean by classes is a full complement of resources that we were going to try to adapt to a, a, a particular project we were working on at Montana Digital Academy. And in consultation with a couple of our teachers, we, we decided to pull the trigger and um, uh, purchase some of these resources, and we found that even things that are highly rated were extremely mixed bag in regards to quality. Some of them were really, really outstanding quality, and some of them were, were, were much less so. But one thing we did find to be consistently true is um, on about 80% of the sellers we worked with to try to identify resources, we spotted commercially copyrighted content that ended up inside of um, uh, uh, presentations and documents that were sold there. And um, I actually approached uh, this year, uh, this past year at ISTE in Chicago, the Teachers Pay Teachers uh, uh, floor booth, talked to a few folks there, and, and they were very nice about it. And they said that, um, you know, that's something that they really rely on users to police. But of course, it's hard to know, you know, if you've been, if your rights have been violated, if, you know, it's, it's behind, uh, you know, in this case, a, a paywall, because you have to pay for the resource to get that and um, you know, and it's an ethical quandary for me to you know receive that resource, know that it includes worksheets or images or activities from like a textbook manufacturer, and exactly how to respond to that, especially since I'm not the rights holder. But I think the thing that also struck me about this, and I'd like to hear more from U.S. on this notion, is that I still, it goes back to the fact that I think most teachers really don't understand copyright. And um, I, I, it's always been the case in, in my mind that the copyright's been kind of a magical box, that, that it's confusing, and it's, it's confusing in both ways. I think some teachers underestimate what they can do with copyrighted material, and I think some teachers overestimate what they can do with copyrighted materials. I also think this is a factor of a decrease in access to library media specialists who used to be the, you know, absolute expert of copyright in a building and not all states are forcing schools to have library media specialists uh, as part of, of, of a, an accredited staff in, 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 in various districts and in, in schools across the United States. So, Wes, I know you've actually taught on copyright issues. It's a workshop you've done. You've done professional development with copyright. What do you think the state of copyright is in 2018 with teachers? I don't know that we've moved forward a whole lot. I think you're you're correct that um, many of the folks who consider themselves to be, if not the gatekeepers of copyright in the in the building and in the district, certainly the educators on copyright, as the the library media specialists have you know either been removed or perhaps disenfranchised or perhaps they've got a lot of other roles or I just we really haven't moved the needle forward. I don't think. Um, when I wrote playing with media in 2011, uh, that, that section on copyright, I, I definitely, I, I, I would love to advance that, um, to a next level because helping people understand, you know, public domain and then understand creative commons and then understand, you know, what traditional copyright was and specifically fair use. And as educational fair use plays into it, I just, it's essential. Um, I used to publish most of my presentations out on the SlideShare, and I think uh, Richard Byrne actually uh, put something out a while back uh, from 2009. I think I have a Copyright 101, you know, slideshow that I did actually up in uh, the, the, the Portland uh, Northwest area. And so I, I think that a lot of teachers that, you know, um, are in the classroom today have a greater need to understand copyright because of the ease with which we can access digital materials and the frequency with which we're utilizing digital materials in the classroom. And I really do think it, it's incumbent upon teachers pay teachers to do a better job. It reminds me a little bit about uh, content ID, and I know it's not a, a perfect analogy, but it seems like we need an engine, and this might be something that a Google or somebody else with more power would have to do, because to your point, there is the paywall issue. So if you can't access the content, how can you tell if your material has been lifted or not? 
Um, I know that what, what's the, the copyright service that a lot of folks pay for to pre-screen essays and things like that. Oh, uh, turn it in. Yes. Thank you. Turn it in.com. Uh, that same kind of, uh, of a, of a, a format where basically, you know, you could have, <coughs> pardon me, my cough will probably return a few times during our show tonight, um, where you could have, um, you know, uh, somebody submit a resource, but then have it identify, you know, is this on the open web anywhere? Um, and then they could also take a look inside their database and, and basically have what YouTube has with their content ID, you know, is a way that matches any kind of music that you put into a song. And then it aligns itself to uh, the database of rights holders to say, hey, you know, is it OK for people to republish things or not? And can they monetize it, et cetera, et cetera? This is not as, as some, I guess, as neat a solution as that would be. Um, because of the wide variety of content and some of the examples in that article have to do with, you know, drawn uh, diagrams and things like that and graphics and, and things like that. But I, I definitely believe that Teachers Pay Teachers has an obligation uh, to advance the copyright needle uh, with teachers. And then I do think that they should be working with uh, other organizations to try and address this kind of, of, of an issue because, you know, there is, there is a remix, right? I was telling you before the show, we just went and saw – the latest Spider-Man, and I'm not a huge Marvel comics guy or Spider-Man guy or whatever, uh, but it was just, it was, it was very, very creative. Um, and I know that just, that draws on the Marvel universe. And, but anyway, just the idea of, of taking, you know, concepts and, and ideas and, and to what, to what degree do you need to change them and transform them for them to truly be your own? Um, the other thought that I have to this is maybe this is something I could take on. Uh, with my wife, interestingly, because one of the, if you want to get to know more about something, a lot of times it's good to delve into it and to, to dabble in it. And to date, I have not, you know, ever done that before with teachers paid teachers. So I was thinking about Fortnite in the same kind of context a little bit. I need to, I need to get into that and play in that environment a little bit, uh, because, you know, I'm ended up, I'm ended up feeling, feeling questions from parents and things like that about digital citizenship and screen time and things like that. And in order to be knowledgeable about it, we, you know, sometimes we need to be, in that environment. So it sounds like something that would be good to, to delve into. And um, perhaps, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll include a, a tweet to teachers pay teachers for the show since we're spending a bit of time discussing this. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they have any initiatives that are going on and any kind of response to this, because I certainly think it's going to be an enduring issue. This isn't something that's going away. Teachers are going to continue to create content and to remix content. But ideally, we're going to be doing that in a respectful way that if folks have, for instance, as one of the, the folks, one of the people in that article, you know, you, you release something free, but you, you put a Creative Commons non-commercial license out there, then that means people cannot take that content and, and go monetize it. You know, but to what to what degree, you know, it doesn't need to be remixed before it becomes, you know, uh, an, an original work um, that, that that's a it's a very fuzzy continuum, I think. So I don't see any easy answers. Sure. And, and I would agree totally there. And, and, and by the way, if anyone has any experience either as a, a buyer or seller on Teachers Pay Teachers, I know from uh, talking to teacher friends of mine that it's a very popular website uh, for those that are looking to find easy to uh, implement lessons that are a lot of times you know, very uh, thoughtfully created, ignoring for a moment the ones that, that are um, – I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, have been scammed from someone else. Um, you know, that's, uh, uh, we'd like to hear from you. If you're buying or selling from that, uh, contact us via Twitter, EdTechSR is our Twitter handle, Backchannel us, um, I have us add you to Backchannel. We'd love to hear more about this because I think this is an interesting phenomenon. Um, I noted this under the notion of a teacherpreneur because I, I've heard that term tossed around a lot in the last decade or so. And, um, I've seen a couple of, of people that are kind of selling services to teach you how to make money on teachers pay teachers and, and I think a lot of people have done that uh, successfully but you know if you're looking just to make money and and, and you um, you know want to tweak the system there are probably a lot of reasons why there that uh, uh, things are not uh, not ideal so if you're a user of that either buyer or seller we'd love to hear from you and know more about that 
So, Wes, let's go ahead and while we're on the subject, because it's it's uh, related to that, um, YouTube is in the news for unfortunate reasons uh, in the last couple of weeks, and uh, this is be uh, you know, kind of after I've personally had a bit of a renaissance with YouTube in the last uh, six months or so because uh, I started finding some channels, some interesting niche channels on YouTube uh, that have been very entertaining, things that would never ever make it into broadcast um, in, in a traditional model and it's content that. That's, that's interesting and engaging. Everything from people who refurbish ancient uh, tools to those that uh, are are doing reviews on some cases three or four decade old MREs to see if they've held up. Uh, amusements, uh, it, it, if it maybe is a way of putting it, but YouTube has gotten itself into a bit of a. a uh, 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 trouble in the last couple of weeks. The first one is that uh, this one I don't really understand because it it seems like it can't possibly be true. But apparently, um, uh, recently, like in the last couple of days, December twenty third, um, YouTube um, released a a video. Like it it it, it tweeted this over social media uh, and put it under their channel. The video, in essence. Um, um, was a reef like they took someone else's video, like a, a it was a, a, a Christmas related video that featured some red and white dominoes, and they republished the video um, and didn't credit the original uh, author. And the original author spotted that, and um, um, and I, I guess I don't know how to put it other than they just reposted themselves without giving credit to the original author. The original author spotted it, demanded credit, and they finally, um, you know, put a, a correction tweet up. But completely bizarre that YouTube, of all people, um, you know, would steal a video like that and then republish it without any way, shape, or form um you know, kind of giving it, uh, uh, you know, credibility of those pieces. So I guess, Wes, did, did you happen to see this video spam um, that went out earlier this week? I had not until I read the article that when you had, you had put it up here. It's it's a great catalyst article for a discussion about intellectual yeah. property and attribution with students, you know, after the holiday. Um, and I think that, I mean, maybe somebody going to be fired over this? I mean, this is an egregious violation of fundamental community guidelines and, you know, not just community guidelines. These are copyright laws. Uh, but this, but it's also community guidelines as far as attribution. It's just, it's a huge faux pas. So, um, you know, attribution matters. As the article points out, it also matters financially to creators that are, that are in, in some cases making their living on YouTube. And so it was just, uh, another, you know, bad news item in a series of uh, negative news items that I think that article that you put about the Verge 2018 tech report card on Google, you know, kind of kind of lists as far as the number of folks that are upset at Google and uh, and not happy. And they definitely need to keep their creators happy. Absolutely so. And that, that inspires the other article. There was a YouTube Rewind video released earlier this month, like it's like the 12th or 13th of December. And as it turns out, um, uh, it, it, it's become the most disliked YouTube video in history. There was previously a 2010 video by Justin Bieber that received uh, 10 million thumbs down or 10 million dislikes. And this video is now, I think, like at 15 million dislikes. Um, and it essentially was a pretty polished um, uh, uh, video that that was a kitschy uh, like year review and featured um, a couple of dozen of the uh, kind of YouTube stars that that you know, have uh, you know, millions of, of, of subscribers and and video views at a time, including a couple of channels that I sometimes frequent. But the whole notion that you know, YouTube seems to be maybe getting sucked into the broader technology correction we've, we've talked about, uh, the stuff last year with PewDiePie um, and his dissatisfaction with the platform, and also he had done some things himself that called into question this notion of, of, of you know, unfiltered video access and doing things for stars. Uh, we've, we've talked in the past on the podcast about uh, uh, YouTube uh, celebrities that have, uh, in the pursuit of, of interesting videos for particularly younger viewers have risked or, or actually sacrificed their lives for um, interesting pieces. And it seems to me now that, that YouTube, um, you know, may get, be getting sucked up into this kind of massive technology correction that we've been talking about here since the Facebook stuff went down after the 2016 election. 
I just put it in the chat. I'd love to see a study, a study that, that compares the number, the number of hours that the average teen spends on YouTube now compared to, let's just say, uh, free reading or, or open, open, you know, free reading. Um, I don't know that we have our heads wrapped around how hugely important and influential and powerful YouTube is as a platform. And yep. I definitely think that there's this literacy gap, you know, in between many adults and many kids. Um, and some of that is reflected in these kinds of things. You know, how many adults, you know, know who PewDiePie is? How many, um, adults are tuned into, you know, some of the, some of the bigger YouTube creators? And, um, so this is, this is important from a literacy standpoint. It's also important, you know, I think that we acknowledge the importance of students being media creators and being able to create effective, you know, videos. Um, so anyway, a couple, couple different side notes to that. Seems like there was another article. Uh, that was related to YouTube. Yes, I put this under media literacy, but I'd like to jump to it. This is from the Daily Beast on December 17th. And I'm not usually reading from this, um, from the site, but this is an incredible article. How, and there's a couple subtitles, weirdly. When I tweeted it, the title was How YouTube Pulled These Men Down a Vortex of Far Right Hate. When you go to the link now, and I don't know if they changed this or what, the title is How YouTube Built a Radicalization Machine for the Far Right. But this article and some other reading that I've been doing from Dana Boyd and some others is really getting me to think about perhaps not just doing a digital literacy parent university session for, for parents next year on YouTube, but looking at radicalization specifically because um, what this article says, and this isn't you know news to any of our, our podcast viewers or listeners, is that YouTube is all about attention and viewing time. And so if they can get us as watchers or as, as you know users uh, to watch more, then they're, they're winning because that's how they make money through their advertising. But what that has created essentially is a radicalization machine because it's not just outlier content. There is a lot of outlier content, but also, you know, radicalization stuff from, you know, white supremacist uh, hate groups to, um, you know, violent extremist groups that, you know, masquerade as, for instance, Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, these are these are real issues. And there's another article, I don't think I have it in this one, but the, gov the U.S. government has a campaign to try to deal with these kinds of issues. The article, which I'll try to find and drop into the show notes, basically says they need to redefine their language because the kinds of terms and sort of academic lingo that they throw around, nobody knows what the heck they're talking about. But it's really important, and it goes to the heart of you know what's happened in, in Syria and Iraq and um, I think we mentioned on the podcast before um, this amazing podcast series called Caliphate. And if you if you haven't listened to that, um, that is a tremendous, you know, documentary uh, investigation into the world of Islamic fundamentalist recruitment, as well as the reality of what happened with per this particular Canadian, you know, young person um, allegedly went over to. The Middle East and participated in some horrific things, but he was groomed and and you know funneled into into that um, environment through YouTube. So a really really good article about radicalization, and I, I think that while YouTube is incredibly powerful and we need to recognize its power, uh, we also need to you know as parents as well as teachers um, recognize that you know this can have some troubling influence on our youth, and I'm not just you know, saying, oh, it's the rock and roll. It's going to all, you know, take down society. I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking about just the degree to which students now are exposed to lots more conspiracy theories, lots more outlier content. Uh, think Alex Jones and Infowars, right? I mean, his message was normalized and, and put into the mainstream. Maybe normalized isn't the right word, but it was largely mainstreamed because of these platforms that really want to, you know, capture our attention and promote views and eyeball uh, eyeball time as much as possible. So anyway, YouTube is definitely uh, part of, you know, the Google universe and, and that article from The Verge, the 20, 2018 tech report card on Google from December 26th. Um, you know, yes, Google has uh, faced a lot of, of uh, <coughs> I would say, warranted scrutiny in the past year. Um, Sundar Pichai, the CEO, did testify before Congress, you know, just here in December and, um, you know, they faced a $5 billion fine from uh, the uh, EU on the way they bundled their apps on, on Android phones. 
Um, they are part of the whole surveillance capitalism model that Facebook is also built on. Although I think that Google has done a lot more to encourage our trust, but um, they are part of this overall tech correction that Jason's talked about multiple times. And so the kinds of data collection and the ways in which, you know, Google's whole economic model is, is built on the more information they can get about us, the more they can present these targeted advertisements, I think is going to continue to be problematic and something that we're going to see the tech correction, you know, continue to move forward with in 2019. I'm passing my cough on to you through the virtual airwaves. Boy, that technology has gotten a, a lot more effective at doing that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> we're a real pair tonight. Um, where should we head off to next, Dr. Fryer? Um, I would love to go down to stuff I put under privacy, surveillance, security. Um, there is a fantastic uh, 60 Minutes uh, CBS News article from December 23rd, How China Can Spy on Your Electronics even in the U.S. We've mentioned these headlines and articles for a while now that, you know, uh, software like Kaspersky, which is a Russian-based uh, software company, is completely banned by the U.S. military, by U.S. Homeland Security. Basically, if you work for an agency of the U.S. government, you're not allowed to utilize that. But we also covered a few weeks ago, I think, this really bizarre Bloomberg headline, which was, you know, arguing that China had planted these essentially sniffer chips, I guess, in, um, you know, all of these different servers. And this was being denied by Apple and, and everybody. But we've had the CFO of Huawei, which is the largest telecom, um, you know, handset manufacturer of, of mobile handsets in the world that's based in China, uh, recently arrested and detained in China. And I think that that individual has been released on bond. Um, but <laughs> what the... Um, you know, the person who's working for Homeland Security says in the 60 Minutes piece is, you know, if especially if you're in China, but he says even if you, you know, have uh, Chinese made gear, um, you are just uh, one click away from basically them having access to your entire phone. Um, I'll put the link into this as well, but I put uh, above our articles, Geek of the Week ideas. Uh, have you ever heard of the Pegasus spyware? Um, hack before jason no that's good I, to me. I found out about this um in the same same uh you know Khashoggi, Khashoggi, and the stuff that's happened with the saudi government and israeli you know companies that have developed these these kinds of spyware this is literally a, a one-tap deal that if they can get you to click on it you know they have complete access of your iphone now that was up through version 9.3.5 so this was a little bit older but Oh my gosh, that kind of capability is just, is just crazy. And so, uh, and again, we're not wanting to just fan the flames of paranoia here. Um, but, but another article that was just along these same lines, and I really looked up this company too to say, Hey, who is this? This is from the Epoch Times on December 24th. It says Huawei and the creation of China's Orwellian surveillance state. Um, the Epoch Times, if you'll take a look at them on Wikipedia and their about page, um, is a group of Chinese dissidents that created this really following not only Tiananmen Square, but the crackdown that the Chinese government has had on um, Falun Gong, I think is the name of the of the group and has that is translated into, you know, English and transcribed somewhere. I'm probably going to be on a watch list somewhere because you you cannot search for that name within within China at all. Um, but this is fascinating because Huawei is, is again, the, the largest uh, cellular phone manufacturer today. And what they break down in this article is the way in which essentially Orwell's vision of a 1984 totalitarian police state is being brought to reality in China today. Um, they have a program called the Safe City Program, which they actually call Skynet. I mean, I'm not. I mean, Skynet's from the Terminator, um, but um, they that's what they're they're calling it here in this whole Safe City project. And so it really is giving the Chinese government access to everything that is being shared, you know, on these phones and, and on these devices. And so I think this is a very troubling twist to the idea of the world is flat, you know, and the idea of supply chains. And it certainly, you know, challenges Apple and every other handset manufacturer because, hey, we simply can't manufacture these things here in the United States. And so um, I think this is definitely some, uh, work, some you know, some reading that, that is worth examining and 
it's it's stuff that's happening really fast. Um, and there's but there's big stuff happening, right? The CFO, the chief financial officer of Huawei. I don't have this article in here, but she but she was the one who was was recently um, detained at, at U.S. officials' request in in uh, Canada. And there you know there's there's significant you know trade stuff happening right now between the U.S. and and China. But this whole building of an infrastructure that empowers a surveillance state. Um, is pretty scary. So, Jason, I, I'm guessing that the, the last commentary is motivating you to ditch whatever phones you have now and, and pick up a Huawei handset immediately. Is that going to be on your 2019 bucket list? It's funny because, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty steeped in the Android universe, and, and there's a couple of Huawei devices that are extremely well-respected by um, kind of Android enthusiasts. There's a, a – and they're, they're – way cheaper than Samsung and HTC uh, high-end models. And they're, you know, they're highly desired commodities. And there's just not United States versions of most of those phones, although there's been some headway of Huawei before the most before the latest controversy to try to go into the, to the United States market. I can tell you, uh, Wes, one experience I had recently, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I uh, and actually joined uh, the podcast from Costa Rica, or my wife and I spent a week in Costa Rica over the Thanksgiving break, and we went into a Costa Rican Walmart our last day there. Uh, we were at an airport hotel, and there's a Walmart next door, and so we went to uh, go check that, that action out there, and I did spend a little bit of time in the electronics section of the Costa Rican Walmart, and uh, I'd say 80% of the phones uh, available uh, uh, in the electronics section of the Costa Rican Walmart were Huawei phones. Um, and they were very reasonably priced, and based on the statistics of what was available, they were um, pretty impressive and extremely, extremely um, uh, well done uh, uh, from a hardware standpoint, ignoring the fact if they could be, you know, weapons of, of, of intrigue or, or weapons of, of, of kind of state action. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's a, a definitely interesting perspective. And if Huawei was available in the United States, uh, the most recent uh, controversies notwithstanding, I think I'd probably be a Huawei customer. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it, it's important when the United States government, when U.S. government officials, you know, are making announcements. I remember when James Comey was still our FBI director, and and he told you know the world, yeah, it's a pretty good idea to cover up your webcam when you're not using it because it's so easy for it to be hacked. I mean, that is is really I think still seen as kind of an outlier. What I mean, we see we have more teachers that are putting you know, stickers um, over their, their webcams. But anyway, uh, these things aren't just, uh, you know, folks, things for the tinfoil hat crowd, let's say. Um, they, uh, they're, they're big issues, and it's going to be uh, incredibly interesting to see how this continues to develop, especially with regard to supply chains and the ways in which companies uh, like Apple, as well as others, are, you know, manufacturing their devices and, you know, can we are, are we going to be able to have confidence that our devices are not going to be easily easily hackable or, you know, part of a of a surveillance monitoring? But, hey, you know, but that was what Edward Snowden showed us. Right. Like most all of our data was being sucked into the you know giant pipes that, you know, AT&T was was providing to the federal government. So I don't know. Maybe uh, we all just can be ignorant and not worry about it. Maybe it's just not a big deal. Privacy. Who needs it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's do a couple of other articles under that privacy piece. Uh, it, this is um, uh, the two-factor authentication article. Um, just mentioning because of, of how great the service is. Uh, we mentioned this probably a half dozen times in the podcast, but if you're not using some kind of two-factor authentication, um, for, uh, you know, at, at minimum your, your main accounts like banking accounts and, uh, your email account, which, uh, you know, is, has, I'm sure a lot of information you probably, um, wouldn't want to get out or wouldn't want people to have access to turning on two-factor authentication, according to our friends at TechCrunch on December or 25th uh, can be um, uh, an amazing way of stopping hackers. And so once again, we'll put our stamp of approval on two-factor authentication. 
And the thing that's also great about that TechCrunch article is it basically two factor or multi factor authentication isn't just a, a binary yes, no. Um, there's actually four different levels that you can take it to. And I like how this article breaks that down. Um, this most simple but also least secure way to do that is just through a text message code. Now, that is what we um, have, you know, encouraged our teachers to start with. Um, but if you want to go a little bit, you know, beyond that, an authenticator app that actually encrypts that information over a secure HTTPS connection is even better. Um, a biometric, which allows you to do something with a fingerprint or now that we've got facial ID and those kinds of things that can step it up another notch. But then the top level, and this is the one that Google has gone to, and reportedly Google has not had any account compromises since they mandated this for all their staff, is to use a physical security key. And so this is a USB, generally, device that you're going to plug in. Um, I have used one of those as an option. The article mentions that when you go to a USB key, uh, generally, your other options are turned off, and so you really need to have two of those and make darn sure that you don't you know, lose both of them. Um, the way I've used it, it's actually another choice, and so I could still, you know, use my SMS or use my um, use my uh, authenticator app. Um, but you know, even in the cases of, of political uh, candidates running for office that aren't, you know, running for president or something, um, hacks and folks trying to get Get a hold of, uh, I guess, especially if you're doing anything federal, maybe not as much for, for you know, local officials. Um, but, it, you know, who who's going to be targeted? That's the question. Uh, would you be subject to a targeted attack? And if we think about just how vital, you know, the keys are to, for instance, our Google account or, you know, any other kind of, of account that we're using for multiple things because we're registering for services, et cetera, um, it's really, really important. So but we just echo what Jason said and say that if you have not encouraged those in your life over the holidays that you may be still, you know, spending time with or staying with to think about security, that's a really uh, wise thing to encourage them to do, um, along with, of course, use a password manager so that passwords can be different on different websites. Okay, let's go maybe in a slightly different direction. This is, I put this in our media literacy this week, and I think we've actually talked about uh, some of the Instagram stuff, uh, or, you know, in episodes of the past, the podcast, but I, I saw two articles in the last week that had an interesting uh, kind of juxtaposition that I want to talk about for a moment. The first one is the notion of... Um, uh, paid sponsorships on Instagram. And there's a great article uh, from our friends at Wired on November 18th that talks about uh, the extraordinary amount of money that's being offered to influencers is the term that, that you'll you'll find tossed around a lot of these paid sponsorship articles. But basically, um, you know, it's easy to pick on like a Kardashian here for this who uh, a lot of times, you know, a good percentage of their content is paid sponsorship content. But this article talks a little bit about you know the extraordinary amount of money that that can be part of this process, and because Instagram um, is a you know a, a kind of a limited channel, right? Like it's uh, there's only um, uh, you know images available, and it's actually not that easy to share things like a web link on Instagram. It's possible, but you have to kind of jump through some hoops to do that. The idea of um, you know a lot of um, uh, money being offered to folks there for kind of demonstrating or showing their products is, is absolutely part of the the, the process, but um, that's not news. Uh, you know, lots of money, uh, middle, upper, five figures uh, is not uncommon for a celebrity that has hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, million followers to use a product as part of that. And I, according to the uh, Federal Trade Commission, they should be telling you that that's a sponsored post, right? That's a part of the shtick. There is that you are supposed to, you know, uh, uh, widely and easily announce uh, when that process is happening. Happening. But the the interesting juxtaposition that I found is that there's apparently now a trend, and this is from the Atlantic, where upcoming Instagram stars are basically fakely sponsoring things, including real things or not. Um, they're saying they're sponsored posts when they're not, and the reason why is because they believe it's giving them credibility to other paid sponsors that might want to be part of this process. And if you don't think the social media has changed the nature of advertising and, and how consumers get access uh, to product and how sellers get access to consumers, then uh, I'll look through this article and how people are, are actually fakely 
showing off products they claim are, are, are paid for sponsorships just to add credibility to their feed. Um, so first and foremost, Wes, do you spend a lot of time trolling Instagram to look for products to buy? No, I don't. I'll admit, and hopefully saying this out loud doesn't make it, you know, blow up my advertising. Uh, there, there's a really cool light bulb that looks like uh, a torch, basically. <laughs> that is the one thing I found on Instagram uh, ads, and I'm like, okay, and I think I actually clicked on it. I mean, I'm just so wary of that, right? Because click on one thing, you're going to see it forever, unless somehow you've electronically, you know, via Amazon or whatever, informed the, the data um, overlords that, hey, you, you bought this. No, I, I haven't. I've definitely um, worked with disclosure policies. You mentioned, you know, early blogging. I mean, that was something that I think we were talking about in the, you know, late 2000s quite a bit as far as a disclosure policy that you needed on your blog. And if you were doing, you know, some kind of promotion or whatever, I mean, you needed to be fully transparent and let people know, even if you were going to put affiliate links in. Um, so I, I will say that I think platforms like Instagram and Facebook could certainly facilitate this a little more by, you know, having some kind of visible button and allowing folks to more readily see, you know, when a product placement is being done. And, and you know, similarly, similar to Teachers Pay Teachers, we talk about, you know, educating about copyright. Um, they, de they definitely have an obligation um, to, you know, comply with this. This is the law, right? I mean, they're not, this isn't an optional thing that you're supposed to, you know, be able to hide. Um, if you are, are being paid to promote something, you are supposed to be upfront and transparent about it. But it is such a wild west out there. Um, and I think it, this also fits into media literacy and the ways in which our, our kids and our, our students are, are being influenced, right? Uh, how many different purchases for the holiday season came directly from a YouTuber who was talking about a particular product? I'm, I'm, I'm sure if we did a formal informal survey at our house, we'd find, you know, there were a fair number of things that were ordered on the basis of YouTuber promotions. Yep, absolutely so. And, you know, we, we beat this drum, you know, probably every week, if not every other week uh, now. But, yeah, media literacy, which seems like such a dated concept in 2018, it seems like something that, that belongs in, you know, the 2001 Internet lessons that, that I think early teachers attempted to do to warn of, of, of coming issues when these technologies exploded. It, it's, it's as important now as it ever has been um, in light of things like this. Okay, where to now, sir? I've got a real positive article I'd like to definitely get to. Um, this is from Larry Lessig, and it was a post back on October 8th, but the title on his Medium channel is Podcasting and the Slow Democracy Movement. Uh, this is a short piece, but it is well worth your time. Uh, one of the quotes I pulled out of this is, he says, this is a climate crisis for the climate of self-government. And we've talked a lot on the show about fake news, about the challenges that we have for social media platforms, identifying bad actors and how that's, you know, a, a continuing and ongoing uh, issue. Let me read you a, a quick paragraph from the, from this article. He says, podcasting will be a critical part of the way out for the architecture of the podcast is the precise antidote for the flaws of the present. It is deep where now is shallow. It is insulated from ads where now is completely vulnerable. It is a chance for thinking and reflection. It has an attention span and order of magnitude greater than the tweet. It is an opportunity for serious and playful engagement. It is healthy eating for a brainscape that now gorges on fast food. Um, I really, really respect Larry Lessig and the work that he's doing now on Fixed Democracy First, which has to do with campaign finance reform. But I just really thought, obviously, we're, you know, pretty, you know, major podcast geeks, uh, loving not only the consumption of podcasts, but the creation and sharing of them. And I'm sure that many of the folks who will be listening to this are, are podcast fans as well. And so, you know, one of the things this makes me think of is, gosh, I probably should should offer some you know, even free workshops for folks to learn how to create podcasts. Uh, Lessig talks about how new technologies tend to fundamentally shift the ways, you know, not only we communicate, but even that we're organized as a society. And I have marveled for years because I've been listening to podcasts since like 2003 or something like that. Um, you know, what a wonderful channel it's been to get into the mind of folks and to really be able to think deeply about stuff. And in the same way that a book can give us an opportunity to have a real deep dive into somebody's mind and thoughts and to really, you know, grapple with some ideas and maybe have our, our shifting, our, our shifting, have our thinking shifted. 
uh, podcasts have done that for me and continue to do that for me. So I love that and love this idea of a slow democracy movement and as much negative as we, we talk about, because uh, a lot of times we are, right? We're just talking about the news. Um, I thought this was a really <laughs> optimistic piece and, you know, perhaps something that uh, others can share as well and think about what kind of implications that might have, not only broadly for for society and for our government, but maybe for us as individuals, um, as educators. Do you think there's uh, room for more more podcasting advocacy today, Jason? I do think that that's very much the, the opportunity in case. And it's interesting. I, I don't remember which news source I was listening to. I was in uh, my hometown, Great Falls, Montana, um, for three days uh, for the Christmas holiday to spend it with my, my, my dear parents. And, um, I you know, I don't really have an opportunity to watch, you know, network news that often, but there was a story about how podcasting was starting to become a kind of prolific source for material for television and uh, television shows and movies, which is not a surprise to me at all um, in, in light of the, the wonderful uh, content that's now available from uh, you know, very polished outlets like Gimlet Media. But I'm honestly a little surprised that podcasting hasn't taken off more in our society because there's just an extraordinary amount of, of pretty wonderful content. Um, I, in the last, I, I you know, honestly thought after I had finished my my uh, uh, terminal degree last last uh, May that I actually would quadruple the amount of time that that I had to listen and consume podcasts. That has not been the case, unfortunately. Um, it's funny how that works. Uh, that that you think you have all sorts of free time, you don't ultimately. But the thing that's been really interesting to me is there are. Um, I would say that that in, in, and I have a relatively narrow set of kind of nerdy interests. There's there's 50 professionally produced podcasts. I'm not talking about you know um, uh, things that are a little lower key um, like the Edtech Situation Room. I'm talking about you know major uh, media outlets that put together extraordinary and compelling content, plus upstart media outlets, which are starting to also become um, you know pretty interesting uh, providers of content. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of room here more for growth. And I also think it's it's pretty amazing because I mean if if you need any other evidence that uh, you know you can have an easy worldwide audience, remember that 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 our podcast, this podcast, has international listeners and people that actually jump in occasionally um, uh, uh, into the chat room, uh, which by the way you can get to uh, at 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 YouTube. Uh, we always post a link when the podcast starts every week of to the chat or to the live version of the show. Um, but we can interact in that way, and the fact that we can do it with relatively little equipment or knowledge or background is a sign that it can be a very democratizing technology. And a thought that I have with this, I mean, uh, the last couple of years, I guess we've done, you know, an end of year show, which uh, I guess we could still throw something together if we wanted to. Um, but, you know, podcasting for me changed uh, on the consumption side quite a bit in 2018 because of my smart assistant, the, the Google assistant that I have and the ability to be able to just like I did tonight, you know, getting dinner ready, you know, say, hey, gee, you know, play the latest episode of of such and such. And then having it stop and pause and also being able to continue it on a different speaker in my house or on my iPhone using the Google Assistant. I mean, that is really powerful. And so if anybody out there listening is a developer or, or knows developers or wants to you know, think about things that will really move us forward in terms of this perhaps you know, slow democracy movement and just the ways in which podcasting can, pet, can, can serve a very uh, constructive role in helping us think deeply about ideas, the, the ease with which we can, a word is I like frictionless. So the degree to which sharing ideas that are in a podcast can become more frictionless. In other words, I listen to something I like in a podcast and I can say to my smart assistant, you know, hey, gee, you know, capture that link, you know, and send that to my phone or, you know, being able to, to share those sorts of things. I think that is incredibly powerful. And I just had an experience here in the last week, actually on Facebook, where I had I had written something political, which I, I usually don't do. Um, and right away, it, it triggered some, you know, pretty heated responses. And I ended up deleting it because I just said, I don't, I don't really want to, you know, have this kind of a conversation, you know, he, here on my Facebook channel. But then that, you know, caused a whole lot of other real feedback. And I wrote a blog post about it. And, and what was wonderful was how different folks that were incredibly diverse, like one of my favorite teachers of all time from high school was one of the ones who, you know, was was giving me feedback and and, uh, you know, 
from you know people I went to college with to folks I teach with now to you know other people I connect with via technology. I mean, wow, that was a powerful experience. And being able to have a, a relatively deep conversation with a, a, a group of folks far flung, you know, mainly in the United States, maybe perhaps all of them in the United States. It was really powerful. So anyway, I think podcasting has great, great potential. And I'm excited to see where this continues to grow, because like you, Jason, I, you know, would have hoped that podcasting could take off to a greater extent. It still remains a pretty niche, um, you know, category of, of media consumption. Um, but I take heart from what Dr. Lessig, you know, had to say about it. And it, it makes me think how can we continue to invest in the platform and also develop the capacity of others to not only consume and and take in podcasts, but be able to create them, especially about local issues and local content. Because as we continue to see the demise of local journalism and local media, you know, that is another gap that needs to have folks step into. It's not, again, completely ad driven and, and, and revenue driven in that respect. Yep, absolutely. So, and the other piece of it too, is that, uh, there are voices that don't have access to the mainstream media that are using things like podcasting and blogging to have a louder voice. And that obviously has been, you know, uh, something that's opened up other doors of other avenues of influence that may be undesirable. But let's be careful in the technology correction that we don't limit the positive power of, of what the Internet can do to help amplify voices that otherwise don't have a say in the mainstream media. And um, I'm the first to admit that, you know, um, I regret in some cases, you know, what, for example, uh, the Internet has done for things like mainstream news media, right? Like their rush to give the content away 20 years ago has really decreased the value of journalism. And there's been no better time in history for having trained professional journalists working on behalf of the people in the United States. But in the correction, let's not overcorrect to where we you know, decrease the power of, of, of one person's voice. I think that's an incredibly important part of what we are doing. Um, I, I think in education, teaching people they can have a voice even if the mainstream channels don't offer them an opportunity to use it. Here's a couple quick hit space articles. Uh, love, you know, space Space news like this. So this is Wired on December 22nd. Space photos of the week. Juno spies Jupiter's mesmerizing clouds. These are unbelievable. Just incredible photographs. Um, you know, I, I suppose we take, uh, you know, the fact that we could put satellites, you know, out into space and into the solar system for granted today. But being able to see uh, I mean, this photograph, it looks like art, but it's Jupiter's northern hemisphere, storm clouds and zigzagging tempests practically everywhere. Darker clouds are deeper in the atmosphere. Lighter ones are higher up. It's just unbelievable to be able to have, you know, that kind of access. Uh, of course, we also watched The Martian as a family recently. That probably also has me more motivated thinking about space things. Uh, but one positive article, or I think it's positive as far as uh, China. Uh, this is from December 23rd, and this is from uh, PBS. With first ever landing on moon's far side, China enters Luna Incognita. And I'll say that reading this article actually led me to some Google searches. And a question that I'd wondered for a while was, I mean, can't we see, I mean, talking about outlier, you know, extremist conspiracy theory and those that say the moon landings never happen. I mean, can we not see the flags or the rovers or, or you know, the equipment that we left on the moon? And so um, this article is talking about how we're expecting China to um, be landing uh, soon on the far side of the moon with uh, a robot. And then they're also, you know, before long, we don't have their, you know, whole schedule of, miles, of, of milestones. Um, they're going to land human beings on the moon and become the third, you know, con- well, the second country. Sorry, the United States is the only country at this point to have landed human beings on the moon. But it ended up leading me down a bit of a rabbit hole. There's a whole, um, you know, lunar mission. I think it, I think it launched in like 2009 or something, but it's, it takes all these real high resolution, uh, photos of the moon. And so yes, it has actually photographed what we believe to be are the flags and capturing the shadows of, uh, several of the Apollo missions. Apollo 11 looks like the flag is down. In fact, I think when they blasted off, they said the, uh, exhaust of, of the, of the aircraft or the spacecraft, you know, knocked it down. Uh, but you can see these tracks of where, where the, the rovers went and all this stuff and so anyway it's just if you're a space geek it's uh you know that's that's good stuff and it's uh pretty interesting to see you know what china is up to and uh, where they're going to go 
Well, Wes, we're near the top of the hour. I do, I want you to talk about one other thing before we go to the Geeks of the Week. Why don't you talk a little bit about Scratch? Okay. Well, Scratch, as you may know, is the MIT Lifelong Kindergarten Group's amazing platform for creating, for developing computational thinking, helping students learn how to code. And so here on January 2nd, they're going to be going to Scratch 3.0, which is a fully HTML5 compatible version. So we've got a couple links, um, a Scratch 3.0 FAQ, and then a little actual Scratch project that talks about moving your Scratch backpack to 3.0. That's not as big of a deal. All of your projects and likes and things like that are going to be moved over to the community. Um, But what is really exciting is the compatibility, right? So the iPad compatibility, not having to have any kind of flash um, player. Um, They've actually made the blocks larger, so they're going to work better on a tablet. And if you do anything at all with coding and computational thinking with students, uh, Scratch is just a must to introduce them to. Um, Even for older students, it's incredible to see the kinds of complexity with uh, you know, trigonometry and, and higher level math that can be done in Scratch. So hats off to Mitch Resnick and the Scratch team. And I look forward to that being unveiled. And um, this next semester, I'm going to do an after school club with my wife to do some physical computing and, and uh, help, help students, you know, do some things with robotics. And we'll be using Scratch as the interface for that uh, using the Edison robot. So that was one of the things that Santa you know, brought Shelly this, uh, this Christmas. So I'm looking forward to playing with that together with her. Nice. Okay. Wes, is there any other link we should cover this week? Um, I'll just mention one other one quick because it'll kind of blow your mind. This is Forbes on December 19th. I put under miscellaneous 2018, the year the database went autonomous. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about AI, artificial intelligence and the ways in which it's going to continue to transform so many aspects of our lives and Oracle, which is the huge you know, database company, um, has put out its first fully autonomous uh, database called the Oracle Autonomous Data Warehouse. And interestingly, in the article, they're saying, you know, database administrators don't need to fear for their jobs, but they're not going to have to do nearly the level of sort of menial, you know, backup and and uh, massaging of, of the database as far as uh, keeping its health up. A lot of those kind of things are being done by the AI engine. Um, what they're going to be able to spend more time on, you know, is utilizing the data, uh, looking at how it, you know, data, data can be visualized and, you know, just really um, increasing the capacity. Again, it's like you're a superhero. You know, you are having your abilities augmented by these AIs. And so that, I guess, in August of 2018 is when that became generally available um, there's a whole section that says, should database administrators fear for their jobs? Um, you know, it's AI is going to it is already uh, again through the Google Assistant and things like that. We're seeing that, you know, in perhaps our homes and our daily lives. Um, but I thought this was pretty fascinating, the ways in which, you know, tasks that a, um, a, a certified you know, database professional would have been handling are going to be things that autonomous systems are able to take care of. And that is, you know, in, in the views of this author going to free those individuals to go on to other higher order, you know, kinds of tasks and be able to do more transformational things with data. So pretty cool. Okay, great. And I want to point out one other article uh, we could probably talk about maybe sometime in the future, but Wes earlier mentioned the notion of keeping up with keeping up with the kids in regards to their preferred ways to communicate. But great article from The Verge on December 21st that says that Fortnite, the game Fortnite, has ended up becoming one of the most important social networks of 2018, that even though in almost all age groups there's a, a vast pushback in social networking and the idea of connecting via that, and that's obviously part of the anti-Facebook and then to a lesser extent and, and uh, there's a it was a great article that we'll push to next time that shows some statistics from 2018 that suggests that there's been a again a vast pushback from from platforms like Snapchat and Facebook all part of what we've referred to here as the technology correction but despite that Fortnite has grown in popularity and there is a very big social component to it I know that from my own experiences when we had um, an, an 18 year 
year-old uh, male in our house last year who was uh, pretty stuck to Fortnite, both to connect with kids stateside and from his home country of Sweden, and then um, from other parents talking about uh, how Fortnite's become a way to connect um, outside of school. So uh, really interesting determinant as a social network, and that article from The Verge is pretty excellent. All right. Shall we geek of the week it? Well, let's do it. I'll go ahead and start. Um, so I, 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 it probably wasn't surprising a couple of weeks ago when we did our uh, gift episode. I am kind of a, a, a multifaceted nerd. I'm a huge notebook nerd, actually, and although my preference uh, tends to be small notebooks, and I did get a wonderful gift from my uh, mother-in-law and my wife. They went in on a subscription uh, because that exists to um, uh, field notes. Uh, you can get a quarterly box of, of specialized field notes every um, a quarter, and so I will be getting that uh, four times over the next year. But I do spend a lot of time reading um, message boards and stuff about notebooks, which maybe makes me the nerd's nerd. But you know, I, I know I'm in in in, in non judgmental company here at the textuation room. But I found a really wonderful notebook that is both um, very inexpensive and uh, uh, available. This is the so-called Artist's Loft Journal. This is from Michaels the Craft store and if you haven't been into a Michaels lately and to be honest uh, the first time I stepped in one was the other day to go find this notebook but they have a really wonderful paper craft section and as a paper nerd myself uh, this is a $5 notebook. Uh, it has the very popular um, uh, quad dotting, um, which you may have heard of before. You can kind of see it there. The bullet journal people are super into dot notebooks. But for $5, it's 128 pages. It is got a beautiful, very hearty, what seems like a, a rip-free cover, um, beautiful thick pages in the journal, um, a Molston skin-style rubber band that fits around it. And if I were not already super into... Um, smaller notebooks, which has been uh, what I have moved to recently as part of my own, um, I dare I say, notebook journey. This is a moleskin version of the, the so-called field notes, three and a half by five and a half inch notebooks, which are now my preferred notebook. But if I were not totally invested into that strategy, um, these $5 notebooks from Michaels under their brand name Artist Loft are amazing. So I strongly recommend there's a link in the show notes at edtechsr.com to the web-based version of that. And my understanding is they regularly go on sale for half price. So uh, I think this notebook's a steal at $5. It is an absolute uh, steal at $2.50. So the Artist Loft notebook from Michaels, the craft store. Unmute myself. Uh, continuing the uh, let's talk about paper geek of the week. I want to talk about Apple photo books. I had not realized until a little before the Christmas holiday that Apple discontinued their print service of allowing you to take uh, Apple photos and make a make a print book and then, you know, have Apple print it and send it to yourself or whoever you wanted to mail it to. And that was my uh, or our Christmas gift for my parents. We had a big 50th wedding anniversary party for them and took pictures and wanted to do a book for that. So that led to some quick uh, research and uh, using a different tool. And I, I'm happy to report that the one I use, it's called Motif, M-O-T-I-F, uh, Motif Photos on Twitter, is really, really fantastic. Um, it is not as seamless and easy as using the Apple Photos product, it was a, a little, the UI or the user interface is a little bit different. Um, but just in the last week, they've actually come up with an update so that if you have an old Apple Photos project or, or photo book project um, that you want to convert over, um, it will supposedly work with, with Motif. I have not seen it. I had it drop shipped to my parents up in Kansas. But they were over the moon with it and said the quality was fantastic and it was really great. So I do love digital, um, but we've done this for some uh, significant family events, family trips, things like that to have a printed book and be able to go through those photos. And sometimes we've actually, you know, I have written, you know, some little narrative that goes along with it. Other times it's just pictures, uh, but definitely something great to check out if you are a, an Apple user, a macOS user, then photos is your you know, free photo management app, but it also allows you to create a different projects and motif is just a plugin that goes right in there. So 
Shout out to Motif. Jason, where can folks find you when you're not here on Wednesday nights? I am mostly on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org. And as a reminder, um, in just a few weeks, early bird pricing for our February conference in Seattle, Washington will be over with. You can go now to NCC's website, www.ncc.org, and learn more about the conference and have a great um, uh, experience in Seattle, Washington this February. What about you, Wes? Well, I will be up there at the NCC conference. I've got to get my uh, airfare finalized, but I'm looking forward to that. I am also on the Twitters at W Fryer, and I am hoping to start a renaissance of, of blogging. I have really slackened off on my blogging, and so here in 2019, you will be hearing more from me on speedofcreativity.org, which is my primary site. Excellent. And this podcast is the EdTech Situation Room. We are here on Wednesday nights, almost all Wednesday nights. We occasionally um, have travel or illness to get in the way of a weekly program. But you can join us here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, which works out to 3 o'clock a.m. UTC for those of you on a more international schedule. But if you can't join us live, although we wish you would, feel free to download our podcast. You can get tiny, tiny, tiny MP3s at our website, edtechsr.com. You can also check out our show notes, or you can go to wherever you aggregate podcasts otherwise. And in fact, I've tried now at least nine different podcast apps on the Android platform, and we appear on all of those apps. So you can search for EdTechSR. In fact, you can even just put in W Fryer into the search engine and get a weekly subscription to this podcast. So thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We do this uh, both to enlighten ourselves so we can have an opportunity to talk about news every week. And we also like to share our views with you. Feel free to find us on Twitter, EdTechSR.com. We love feedback via that medium. Or you can also go to our website, EdTechSR.com, and find out more about connecting with us. And we hope to see you or hear you on a future podcast episode.